Jesus himself said it in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. This is, this is a verse that we should all have memorized. Because this, this verse uh, is your job description and mine. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. We were appointed to be going. We were appointed uh, to be um, moving constantly in the direction of unsaved people and bearing fruit. And that your fruit, I, I just love the end, that your fruit would remain. I, I don't know if this is a, a little bit of God's humor, okay? When you think of fruit, what do you think? Uh, uh, fruit doesn't remain, right? Fruit gets rotten, doesn't it? I mean, when we think of fruit, it gets rotten. But spiritual fruit not only doesn't get rotten, it keeps getting better, right? People keep growing in Christ. It's just a, a, a phenomenal description of, of what the Lord wants to do through us. But I love the last clause, I think more than any, because he says, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, I'm not asking you to, I didn't choose you to do something that you're not going to be able to do. I chose you to do something that you're going to be able to do because I'm going to help you do it, okay? Jesus helps us do it. You say, well, you know, I don't know how to share Christ with people. I don't know how to do that. I didn't go to seminary or Bible school. Or I, I don't know how to do that. He knows that. He knows you don't know how to do it. That's why he promises to help you. He's saying, pray, pray, and I'll help you do it. I, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission passage, uh, also he made it clear that our fruit-bearing is to include all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, or behold, or it's like, you know, he, he's, he's just told these disciples that they got to go and make disciples of all the nations. I mean, can you imagine? You think they were blown away? Okay, it's a relative handful of guys. And he's just told them that they're responsible for all the nations? Uh, right? I mean, it would be like a room full of people, like, like if he just said to us, okay, all the nations depend on you. And I can imagine what their faces might have looked like. And so he says, lo, or behold. It's like, but, it's like he's saying here at the very end, but don't worry about this. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute, guys. I want to tell you. Look, you're not on your own on this. I am with you. As he's with you. As he's with me. Whether we're here in Fort Worth or whether we're in Cambodia, wherever he has led us to go for his glory. He will help us do what he's put on our plate to do. And I love the way it ends. Because there would be those who say, well, that's not for us. That was for the early church. This doesn't apply to us. So he takes that argument away by saying, even always, he'll be with us always helping us. How long? Even to the end of the age. We're not there yet. We're still in the same age. So these words are exactly, exactly for us. Jesus commanded us to be his witnesses to the most remote, remote part of the earth. Acts 1.8. 
in uh, some in May or June, I guess it was, of 2001. My wife and I took a small singing group from Master's College called Majesty, literally to the end of the earth. Why do I call it the end of the earth? Extreme north-central Siberia, the farthest north that any human beings have ever been known to habitate, to live. I, and we went there to minister to reindeer herders living in wigwams. And they had practiced, they had developed a lot of songs in the Russian language. And one of them talked about taking, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there we were at the end of the earth with their reindeer sleighs piled up so they could sit on them. I, singing singing a song to those at the end of the earth about taking the gospel to the end of the earth. It was, it was unbelievable. Uh, we, we had opportunities then. We took dental teams there. We, we had opportunities to, to sponsor church planters, and I went back there several times. Uh, there was a Russian doctor there. His name is Viktor Petrovich Chesif. He had spent his life there and he had been a deacon before he'd gone up there. And when I met this man, he, he was a TB expert. And the people that lived in the wigwams I, were real pagans because they, they not only herded the reindeer and sold their, uh, sold their, their pelts and so on, but they, they survived eating reindeer meat, which they didn't think it was necessary to cook before they ate it. Uh, and uh, because we flew in there on a helicopter and we took them humanitarian aid and Bibles and so on. And so they just, they, they, I saw a young one, uh, a young man with his little four-year-old son running off towards the herd with a, with a rope to lasso. And I thought, uh-oh, they're going to kill the fatted calf and they're going to expect me to eat this raw reindeer meat. I, and which is what happened. I won't go into all the detail for the sake of the ladies. Um, but I learned why they have tuberculosis rampant. It's from eating raw meat. But there's a doctor there. I mean, the Lord had put this all together. Victor Petrovich Chesif, who had given his life. He was like 74 at the time. And when I met Victor first time, do you know what he said to me? Uh, Pastor Dan, you, you wouldn't believe this. I mean, here I am at the end of the earth uh, with reindeer herders, and a doctor shows up there, and he says... To me, Brother Robert, could you get me some commentaries by John MacArthur? So when we had, so we got him to him, and, and then when we had the, the big MacArthur conference, when we distributed the study Bible, uh, we brought him down to be there so he could meet John, and <laughs> it was just incredible, incredible. Um, we we had we had some evangelism there where. Um, uh, a psychiatrist say, was saved, a woman psychiatrist. I don't know how often that happens, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Out there at the end of the earth, you know. My point in, in sharing experiences is, is only to share, you know, what the Lord is doing and brag about what he's doing in these different countries and to encourage some of you to take a step of faith, to just trust him. Uh, Pastor mentioned this morning how he's praying um, 
a little earlier today uh, here in the, in the service about how he's praying that many of the Lord would raise up many of you and the church would then trust him to send you out. See, what, what he wants, he, he, he doesn't expect all of us to go to Africa. Okay? Africa, we, it, it'd be too crowded if we all went to Africa, you know? <laughs> but he does expect every one of us to be willing to go to Africa. Okay? And you know when he wants you to be willing to go to Africa? Today. Tomorrow. Not, not after you work out all the things in your life. and day. It's now. I mean, he wants every one of us to be able to say, and my prayer is that by this evening, most of you will be at this point, where you can say, Lord, I am ready to do anything, anything, no asterisks, that you want me to do. Anytime, anywhere. And, and until, until you arrive at that point, you're going to always limit what the Lord wants to do through you. Okay? It's where he wants all of us. No greater endeavor on the planet, nothing more important on the earth than to preach the excellencies of Christ to the nations. That is, all the nations. Um, Christ himself has commanded us to do it. There's no nation too hard. There's no nation um, too opposed. It may be illegal to do it. It may seem impossible to do it. It may be officially impossible to do it. But my dear brothers and sisters, we are a chosen race and we are commanded to do it. God has a plan for the people in every nation. We see in the book of Revelation, every nation will be there. How are they going to get there? Through us and other people like us. Russia, I made my first trip over there in November 89 and what, for three weeks. And while I was there, they started taking down the Berlin Wall. While I was there, okay? Harry had a Russian background and language, major in Russian in college before I was a believer. I was... Um, I had served in military intelligence using the Russian language. I had that background. I, and uh, that's, that's where it began for me. But while I was there on that first trip, while they're bringing the wall down, I was talking with the theological leader of the Soviet Union. And he was in agony. The whole rest of the world, Christians all over the world, were cheering. God has answered our prayers and granting freedom to the people behind the Iron Curtain for the gospel. The Christian leader there is anxious, worried, said to me, Brother Robert, he said, I have great fear that freedom is coming. And with the freedom will come a flood of false teachers. And our churches are not ready for false teachers. They've never been exposed to a false teacher. They'll be so vulnerable. I turned to him and I said, Brother Yaakov Kuzmich, if the Lord allows me to serve in your country, my highest priority will be to help you maintain a doctrinal fence around your churches. And that became my marching orders 20 years ago to this day. That's priority one for me. One story so that you know something about the harvest conditions there. 
Bucharest, Romania, January 1990. It was four weeks after Ceausescu, that horrible dictator, was overthrown and killed. You may remember this. You saw it on TV. Uh, after he had uh, killed several hundred university students for peacefully demonstrating. My job at that point was to go into all those countries and find solid churches that we could come alongside and help, the ones that had survived. And so I had taken an overnight train from, uh, uh, from Budapest, Hungary. And the Lord put me in a sleeping compartment with, with a young Romanian veterinarian who, who was out of, it was his first weekend ever out of the country. I, and uh, he had taught himself English in hope of escaping. So we get into Bucharest, and he just put his arm around me. I mean, he got me a hotel room. I didn't know anybody there. I had a couple addresses, hopefully find a pastor, a couple of pastors. I, and uh, so it was a Friday. He got me a hotel room, and then, then he said, well, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, I, I don't know. He said, well, come to the cemetery with me. So he took me to the cemetery. Now, on a Friday night, the cemetery was lit up with makeshift wires and because there were you know, several hundred fresh graves of these university students and their parents were coming. They all had little, little wooden crosses and they all had their picture on there and dates. And I remember standing there looking. My kids were of university age. There's Rob. There's Todd. There's Mary Beth. What price freedom had a great impact on my life. After we left there, he said, he said um, uh, something really amazing happened here tonight. He said, our, our military officers are demonstrating against the new government. Well, I'd never heard of military officers demonstrating. I mean, they'd shoot them normally, you know. And, and he said, but it's because they've brought a, a former communist general out of retirement and made him the new secretary of defense. And so he said, there's this big demonstration going on in the central square. Would you like to go there? I said, sure. So, so we go over. I, and, uh, you know, I'm the only one in the crowd speaking English, and then this guy's name was Catalan Tan. He said, would you like to interview some of these guys? I said, sure. So I'm talking to these, these um, uh, colonels and, and generals, I, and, uh, and the crowd started to press in around me because it looked like, you know, the, you could hear people, I could hear people saying American, American, American. So they're thinking, the crowd's thinking that I came from the government or something, and, you know, and I'm there and I'm going to do something. I, and the crowd started squeezing, they were, they were, 15, 20,000 people in the square and just murmuring through the crowd, there's an American here, there's an American here. He's over there talking to the officers. And the, the crowd is squeezing in around me and I'm thinking, boy, it's an opportunity to say something. So I turned to Catlin and I said, Catlin, I said, would you, would you help me try to speak to this crowd? He said, sure, I'll try. Well, he, he would have been in prison the rest of his life a month ago if he had done that, okay? I mean, that's how things had changed so quickly. So I, I only had a couple things I wanted to say. And so I said, you know, you're, I'm going to talk as loud as I can. I said, you talk as loud as you can. I, and so I started. And, and I, said, uh, I said, greetings and good evening. We in America join you in great thankfulness to our great God for the wonderful new freedom that he has granted to you. But I'm constrained to tell you that the ultimate answer to all your problems in Romania cannot be found even in democracy, but can only be found in faith in Jesus Christ. And a man over here yelled back in English at the top of his voice, Mister, can you get us Bibles? And somebody over here yelled, 
Bibles, what we need is Bibles. And seven or eight people in that big crowd, when they knew I was an American and they sensed I was a Christian from what I had said, are crying out for God's word. New Testaments, one guy said. This was a country where they had been taught all their lives there is no God. But as soon as they had freedom, what are they crying for? They're crying out for God's word. Okay? The only thing that's changed today is they're still crying out for God's word all over these countries the same way, and they don't have it. Such a tiny percentage have it. And the Lord has brought us together for such a time as this, and your pastor and a, and a group are going to Tajikistan. Maybe it's not even one in 10,000, and he's going there to teach at the first Bible Institute ever in the history of that country. It's incredible. I mean, this is your little church in this plan in a grand and glorious way, right? What's going to be next? Well, I, I want to tell you this evening um, about a couple, a couple of um, amazing calls. Uh, and the first is the call that the founder of SGA had. His name was Peter Danica. He was born in Grodno, uh, Belarus, of Orthodox family, non, real non-believers. Uh, in 1914, he was 14 years of age. I mean, sorry, 15 years of age. Uh, it was just on the threshold of the First World War, and they were expecting a terrible famine to come, and people were going to starve to death. Uh, and, and so his family, he had uh, six brothers and sisters, and he was the eldest. Uh, and his, his mother and father decided that they would borrow money to buy uh, a ticket on a ship to America and send their 15-year-old son to America to hopefully get a job and send money back to them so they could afford to buy food when the prices were so high in the famine that they wouldn't all starve to death. Uh, and uh, so they, um, uh, you had, they found out you had to be 16 in order to uh, travel alone on the ship. So they went to the local Orthodox priest and paid him a couple of dried fish to alter the birth certificate so he'd be 16. Uh, and uh, his father then rented a team of horses uh, and a wagon for a couple of days and, and drove his young son 25 miles to the train station, put him on a train, 15, think of this, 15 years old, puts him on a train, uh, he go, where he rides to the coast to a place called Libal, Russia. And on March 11th, 1914, he boarded a ship called the SS Vinok, bound for Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, Fourteen days on the ship, I, and uh, he, um, he was working for, the sailors told him if he worked with them on the ship that they would feed him. Uh, and when he got to Halifax, somebody pointed out that his ticket had, had paid for uh, his meals. His meals had been paid for, and they had tricked him, and they made him work for his meals when they were actually paid for. Uh, and he used that the rest of his life in doing evangelism, you know, saying um, that all these people were trying to 
work their way to heaven uh, when Christ has already paid for their ticket, you know, just as on his ship. And so from Halifax, he rode the train to Chicago, and in Chicago, he, he found a cousin. Uh, and long story short, um, he got a job, made $6.90 a week, and, uh, and started sending money back to his family, sent enough back that paid off their debt. Uh, and uh, then his mother and father and children were moved by the government uh, hundreds of miles into Russia to get families away from the German army that was advancing in the First World War. Uh, and they lost contact, and he couldn't send them money anymore, and for five or six years, they had no contact. In the meantime, somebody, I'm going to really shorten this, uh, somebody took him to Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, uh, where he was saved, uh, and uh, then he went to Moody Bible Institute, and then to, uh, to the Bible Institute up in St. Paul. Uh, and uh, while he was studying, just after he'd finished there, he got a letter from his mother. Finally, she got his address somehow, and she wrote to him, and she said, she said, Peter, why, why haven't we heard from you? Um, your sisters have died of starvation, and two of your brothers. I, and he wrote back and, and sent some tracts and tried to witness to his mother, and she wasn't interested. I, but his father was interested. And uh, so he decided to try to go back to see his family and try to lead the survivors to Christ. I, and so somebody gave, gave him money to go back. And when he, in 1925, uh, when he uh, came up to the door of their home, his mother greeted him and said, Peter, you're two weeks too late. Your father died two weeks ago. I, and no one had ever gone to America from that part of Belarus before. I, and so... Um, the, their village people demanded that they have a village meeting so he could tell everybody what it's like in America. Uh, and uh, instead of so much about America, he told them about Christ, and a large number of them repented and, and became believers in that first meeting. Uh, the word got around to um, villages in the area, and he became an evangelist, and he was there for a few months, and just you know, hundreds, thousands of people came to Christ in, in that part of Russia. Uh, and uh, so he, he came back home, uh, and uh, shortly after he got back, the communists were severely persecuting the believers, uh, and he couldn't go back to the Soviet Union anymore. And so in 1934, in the back of a shoe store called Headstrom's in Chicago, Slavic Gospel Association was launched, right in the middle of the Depression, uh, when they were killing believers in Russia. Uh, and... Uh, but he had a burden for Russian-speaking people all over the world, uh, wherever he could find them. So he became known as Peter Dynamite because he was a fiery preacher, and a great evangelist, and Russians were kind of connected around the world. There were Russian immigrants all over the world, and quite a few in South America. So he was invited by immigrants in Paraguay and Uruguay and Argentina. And so he went down there preaching, and on the way back, somebody said, you know, you ought to stop in a place called Quito, Ecuador, where there's a Christian radio station developing called HCJB. So he stopped there and uh, developed a relationship with, with the leader. His name was uh, Jones. Uh, and um, in 1941, from Quito, Ecuador, 
he was the first ever to preach in the Russian language over the radio, and it was short wave so they could hear it in Russia. Uh, and by the end of the 40s, it was 25 programs a week going over the Iron Curtain. Uh, and, uh, but in 1943, he found that there were a lot of Russians in Toronto, Canada. Uh, and so he started the first ever Russian Bible Institute in Toronto, Canada. Uh, in 1944, he went down to Rosario, Argentina and started the second Russian Bible Institute in the history of the world. Uh, and then continued to develop the radio ministry. Now, by this time, all the churches were closed in the Soviet Union except two. There was Moscow Central Baptist Church uh, and ch the, the Baptist Church in Novosibirsk, out in Siberia. All the other churches were closed by the communists. So the believers had, had, had nowhere for nourishment, nowhere to learn theology. Uh, but the SGA radio ministry began to kind of explode. I, and before long, they had engaged a total of 10 transmitters surrounding the Soviet Union through three different missions, through HCJB, through Far East, through Far East um, Broadcasting, and through Transworld Radio. I, and so from the 1960s until the end of the 80s, through SGA Radio, the Soviet Union, while it was closed, for the gospel, was bombarded, saturated with the preaching and teaching of God's word by radio. And it was the, it was the only, well, they also developed, they took the Bible Institute curriculum from Rosario, Argentina, and put the whole curriculum on the radio. So it became the Bible Institute of the Air. And then as it developed further, they created the Seminary of the Air. So there, were, there would still be many decades before there would be, be a Bible Institute or a seminary in Russia or in Kazakhstan, but they could listen and, uh, and uh, learn sound theology over the radio. There was no other way. There was no, and so the believers were getting all their encouragement from this little missions radio program, pro programs. 99% uh, of the believers didn't have a Bible. There's nowhere to get a Bible. And so there were programs every day just reading the Bible slowly enough that you could write it down, dictation speed. That resulted in numbers of people over time having a handwritten entire Bible. Uh, I've been trying to get my hands on one of those. It'd be really precious to have, you know. I, I, I've seen one, but I, nobody's been willing to give it to me yet, you know. So. Uh, and uh, so in the meantime... Um, while the radio is going on, then, then it was the SJ started translating books, and the total now I think it's up to 423 uh, quality, sound Christian books that have been translated by SJ into the Russian language and distributed over there, and millions of Bibles. So it was while it was while we couldn't go there as missionaries, we had thousands of radio, but the radio programs by the end of the 80s were up to 700 programs a month being aired and 160 new programs every month. Okay. I, and, but Peter didn't, didn't stop with that. Peter Danica heard that there were Russians in New Zealand and Australia, so he went down there and started offices. And, uh, but not just for ministering to the Russians there, but 
but for ministering to the, uh, to the churches and, and helping the churches there somehow get involved in sponsoring the radio programs or, or in helping with the translations. So he opened SJA offices in, in New Zealand and in Australia, and, then, and, and Canada was already there, and then England and Germany and France. Uh, <laughs> they do the same thing we do, relate to the churches in those countries. And the, the one in Germany sort of got mixed up uh, on their philosophy of ministry and, and uh, decided that parachurches you know, were uh, equal to or greater than churches. And so I said, in that case, we have to divorce. So we divorced over that. Uh, and we sort of let them go. But our English office is very strong uh, in ministering in the Eastern European countries. The, the main thing I'm trying to talk about here is how the Lord took this 15-year-old Belarusian kid. When he came to America, he only knew two words in the English language. He knew, he knew how to say, sure, all right. And it got him in a lot of trouble. <laughs> because, you know, there were times when the right response wasn't, sure, all right. Uh, and... <laughs> And when he first went to church, he, he, the only reason he went to church was because, uh, because he wanted to learn English. And somebody told him if he went to this church that, that they're speaking in English, he could learn English there. Uh, and he was living in a boarding house when he got saved. And uh, uh, there was a pastor named Paul Rader who was preaching, and, and Peter, young Peter was saved. Uh, and he came back to the boarding house. And he was so, so overflowing with the joy of the Lord... Uh, that the manager of the boarding house encountered him coming down the street singing, and, and he thought he was drunk. He said, Peter, are you drunk again? And he said, no, I'm saved. <laughs> and uh, that's where it, it began, just a phenomenal ministry, you know, up until today that, that we have a wonderful partnership in the gospel with you folks. Now, when, when the Lord brought the curtain crashing down, uh, Peter was not only known as Peter Dynamite. Uh, over the years, he became known for the motto, much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. And he was a great man of prayer. Uh, and his, his favorite, favorite verse was Jeremiah 33, 3, where, where God says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. And he claimed that verse his whole life. And he traveled all over the world getting people to pray. He would hold all-night prayer meetings from Japan to Australia uh, with great responses with the churches. And for the purpose of, of, of asking the Lord to bring down the Iron Curtain so that the gospel could be freely preached in Russia. Well, do you remember in November 1989, when it happened instantly? Do you remember what it was like? You don't remember? You don't remember that, you know, one day the Soviet Union is closed and the next day their government is virtually collapsed? And then it was one country after another? You know, it was, then it was, then it was, um, it was Bulgaria and then it was Romania and Poland and Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, uh, just one after another, like dominoes falling? And the whole world is watching that. And it's like, you know, how could this happen? And I remember sitting next to men on, and women on the airplanes during that time. 
I, and even people who would describe themselves as atheists or agnostics. I mean, everybody was talking about it. I mean, there was nothing else we were talking about for three or four months. I, and the atheists and the, and the agnostics, in their own way, would glorify God. They would, they would say, well, I don't believe in God, but there had to have been a supernatural influence, right? I mean, it was, it was incredible. Well, I, I don't doubt for a second the, the, that it was the Lord answering the prayers of the millions of people around the world that were motivated to pray that the Lord would bring the Iron Curtain crashing down. And so from this 15-year-old Russian boy that the Lord brought to America, then called to himself uh, and uh, gave him a burden for his own people, uh, all these incredible, great and mighty things continue up to this moment. Through our ministries since 1990, we've trained, by God's grace, churches like yours have helped us. We've trained more than 5,000 in the Bible institutes and the seminaries. And uh, the 400 church planters that we've been sponsoring have planted more than 2,000 churches. More than 200,000 children and orphans have been reached for the Lord. You know? And uh, um, so it's been incredible from this young man's call. Well, my call then, I, I mentioned that I had been over there when they were bringing the wall down, when the wall was coming down. And I came back and I quit my job at Master's College and Seminary on the first day back. And church got behind me and the college got behind me. And I was gone. Two weeks later, I was gone as a missionary to that part of the world because they knew I had the Russian language background. And they just said, wow, this is, this is for... And so my assignment was go in all those countries. You know, go, go to Poland and try to find, see if there are any ch- solid churches surviving in Poland. I went into Poland. I went to Warsaw, and I met with church leaders, and they said, they said we need a seminary in a place called Wrocław. It's a city of 800,000, and would you help us develop a seminary there? I went back to my hotel room that night, and I got out my map of Poland, and I'm looking for Wrocław. How would you spell that? Wrocław. <laughs> Well, Vrats, V-R-A-T-S-L-A-V, right? Vrats, what? It wasn't on the map. I mean, cities of 800,000 ought to be on the map, right? Wasn't there. So I went to the meeting in the morning. I said, I don't understand this. You know, tell me where this city is. So I got the map out, and they showed me. You know how it's spelled? W-R-A-C-L-A-W. Well, you know, I can handle the W's, you know, being V's like in German. You know, and the C can have a T-S sound like in the Slavic languages. Um, but um, the L, that's what I didn't get. The L was transformed into a W. If you know the Polish language, if you put a little diagonal across an L, it becomes a W. Wow. So then I, then I went to, uh, and we helped them establish a seminary there. Uh, and then I went to, to, to the Czech Republic, and I, um, I went to Prague, and I, I was looking for the leader of the Baptists in the Czech, Czechoslovakia. I went to his home. He wasn't there. They told me I could find him in another city. There was a four-hour bus ride away yeah, called Brno. So I went to the bus station. I got a ticket. I went to Brno. I had the address of a church where I could find him. It was Sunday afternoon about 5 o'clock. 
Uh, in those days, most, in most communist cities, half the tree, street signs were missing. You know, it's hard to find someplace if there's no street sign, you know? So I'm walking, it's snowing harder and harder, and, and now it's about 5.30. I think I'm in a neighborhood, but I can't find the church. And so I decided, well, how am I going to find this church? I thought, well, the word Baptist usually survives all languages or some form of it. And so I decided I'm just going to stand on this corner and I'm going to wait till somebody walks by who looks like they might be going to church. So these two grandmas came by. And I, and I just turned to them and I said, Baptist. <laughs> and they both got a big smile and said, come with us. You know, I mean, I could tell I'm coming. So they took me to church. And I, I, I'm sharing these stories because I want you to get excited and get, cur- get courage about going to countries where you can't speak the language and just see the Lord take care of you, okay? That's my motivation, especially for young people. Get excited about the rest of the world, okay? Just don't be intimidated about it. I, and, and so they take me to the church, and I walk in the front door, And as I come through the front door of the church, there's a man standing about 20 feet away. And as I come in through the front door, now nobody in the world knows who I am or where I'm from or that I'm coming. I mean, I'm just walking, I'm this guy walking in off the street, you know. And this guy said to me, are you from Grace Community Church? (laughs) And and here's how I went. How could you know that? <laughs> right? I mean, it, he said, well, I only heard of one church in America. That's the one I heard of. I said, well, that's my church. That's where <laughs> I'm from. <You> know? <laughs> I, and so that was my pedigree. About 15 minutes later, I'm preaching. <laughs> I, and after I'm done preaching, I sit down in about the third row. And about... Two-thirds of the way through the service, this distinguished-looking man with white hair came in from the back, came over and sat down next to me and introduced himself. He was the man I was looking for. He was the man I was looking for. He had no idea who I was. We helped them develop a Bible institute. Uh, and then we helped uh, develop another seminary in, in, in Prague. And, um, I went to, um, in 1991, it's, this is amazing, because okay, so I was there when they took the Iron Curtain down. In August, on August 18th, 1991, is when Gorbachev was kidnapped, remember that? Gorbachev, there was a coup underway. I was there for that. <laughs> I, and I had been on the overnight train from Kiev, from Moscow to Kiev. And when I got to Kiev, Uh, I went to my hotel, and when I walked into the lobby of my hotel, I could tell there was something horribly wrong. Anybody here who can remember when JFK was assassinated? Remember what it was like? The emotion everywhere? There was was a unique... I, I, I was actually... I was in a guest house in Germany when JFK was killed. I have this propensity for being places when things happen. But I, so I walked in this hotel, and it was just like this. You could feel the emotion in the room. There's something really wrong in this country. And then one of, uh, one of my young assistants showed up, and he came over to me, and I said, what's wrong? I can t-. 
He said, well, you know, our president has been kidnapped, uh, and it's an overthrow of our government, and, uh, and the rumor is that the communists are taking over again, uh, and they're already saying that they're, they're early in their plan is they're going to round up the Christians, you know. So we had three days of prayer there with the church leaders while this was all going on, and then uh, uh, Gorbachev was rescued, and then I resumed my travel. Well, that was my first time to go across Siberia. I was traveling all across Siberia alone from city to city and, and looking for churches. I, and, I, and I came to a place called Anadjur. And I won't give you the detail of how I had to ride, ride an old broken-down bus, and then I had to wait for a ferry and ride the ferry across the bay for a couple hours, and I finally get to Anadjur, a little city of 20,000 people where there's no church of any kind way out in Siberia, right, all, all, all the way to the coast, actually. Uh, and so I decided I was just going to walk the streets and interview people. So everybody that I came up to, I would simply ask them if they were a believer. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, that in Russia, they have a word that we need in America. Uh, they have a word that means a real believer. You know, not just a, a real believer, somebody like you. So you don't have to describe that. The word is verisci. And so, and nobody ever lies about it. Everybody knows what it is. I mean, if they're not a real believer, they never say they are. I, and so I'm walking the streets, stopping people and saying, excuse me, are you a believer? Well, the answer was 100% no. But in every case... The people that I was talking to would say, no, I'm not a believer, but we need a church here. What do you think of that? That's a harvest ready to explode, isn't it? And that's really where it was over the whole Soviet Union. I mean, um, unbelievable hunger for God's word. My wife used to stand in, in, in Red Square in Moscow and hold tracks on her hand like this, and people could take them, would come and take them like you were feeding birds, you know? Just incredible. Uh, or or we'd, we would go into the middle of Red Square and, and start singing and gather a crowd. One Sunday afternoon, we gave away over 3,000 scripture brochures in about two hours in Red Square. People were just so hungry for anything from God's Word. <clears throat> Let me tell you my story about Turkmenistan, okay? The Lord put Turkmenistan, all these countries were on my heart, so I'd go in and, and everywhere we went, we would, we would start something, you know, start, help, it was all focused on training and schools that go on to this day. But Turkmenistan uh, just was on my heart. I mean, almost no Americans have ever been there or even heard of it or heard of, do you know what the capital is? Ashgabat. Ashgabat. Now, in the English, that, that sounds like a fairy tale place, doesn't it? Ashgabat. And it is almost a fairy tale. Have you been there since it's rebuilt? Re the rebuilding, all the beautiful big new buildings in Ashgabat. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's incredible. All white marble and fancy fountains, and, and it's incredible. Yeah, it's just incre incredible. Well, for about. Six years, there, there are only about 400 believers in the country. And for about six years, they weren't allowed to meet. They weren't even allowed to have a prayer meeting in an apartment together. And in fact, we bought them a van 
so they could, they could have Bible studies and prayer meetings moving through the city. They could pick people. The only way they could do it. And that had been going on for six years. But the Lord had put this country on my heart, and I applied for a visa, and somehow I got a visa. My assistant from Ukraine couldn't get a visa. I, and a, a Russian brother traveled down there. We, did, we flew late at night. We got there about 12 o'clock. And for some technical reason, they would let him into the country at midnight, but they wouldn't let me into the country. They said, well, you got a visa, but you need this other document. You don't have it, so, so go over there to the transit lounge and sit down, and you'll need to go back to Moscow at 8 in the morning. I, and so um, I'm sitting through the night on this metal bench. What I didn't know was that the Russian who came with me and got into the country called Moscow and got a bunch of people in Moscow praying through the night that the Lord would change their heart and let me into the country. And at 8 o'clock, they came in for me, and I'm gathering my, my luggage to go on the plane back to Moscow, and the guy said, they've decided to let you into the country. And it was a Sunday morning. And so I walked out of the building, I didn't know if I was going to see the pastor. I went there at great risk. I thought it was possible that they would assign to me an, an interest, a government guide, who would then watch me, and I wouldn't be able to meet with the believers at all. So I went with that kind of risk. I knew that could happen. Uh, and, uh, so in, but instead of that happening, when I walked out of the airport, the pastor, the leader of the churches, was there waiting for me. Vasily Korobov. And Vasily said, Robert, I'm so glad to see you. Gave me a big hug. And he said, but we must hurry. We're having our first worship service in six years this morning. He said, I've rented a building on a lake, and we got 10 people to baptize. So off we go. What a historic occasion. What a glorious day it was. Seven young Muslim men had been saved, and three women. And we baptized them. We had communion. We were there all day. We were there all day, and that began our relationship in, in Kazakhstan. I mean, in Turkmenistan. So I left the next day. And that next evening, he had gone to a neighboring city to meet with the believers. And while they were meeting, the police came in, arrested them all, took their Bibles, took their hymn books, and told them never to meet again or something terrible would happen to their pastor. The next time I went there, the same thing happened. The day after I left, everything went okay while I was there. And the day after I left, he was somewhere and he was arrested and, and so on. So I haven't gone back since then, but we've been helping and I, I'm, I'm hoping to go back. So I love your country. Pray for Turkmenistan. Imagine a country with only 400 believers in the whole country. Okay, I, one more story. This is the most incredible experience of my life. This is, about, this is about calls. This is about the, these are the kind of things that, that the Lord has waiting for uh, many of you, I'm convinced. The, um, I was sitting in a chapel at Master's College. And I, I referred to this this morning without naming. I, and uh, the missions moment graphically was about a country called Albania that I didn't know anything about. I knew it was a little country in Europe. I knew, it, I knew they had been tied to the Soviets and then they broke and they were tied with the Chinese, and, but that's about all I knew about it. And we, we didn't know about it here because we hadn't had diplomatic relations for 50 years. And so we didn't study about it in our schools. We did, there was no information flow. There was no media flow. There was nothing. 
Uh, but when I saw up on that screen that, that there were no believers known in the country and all the churches had been closed and Americans aren't allowed to go there, I turned to the guy next to me and I said, but we're commanded by Christ to go there. That means there's got to be a way to go there. So I started praying about it. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. And so the Lord gave me an idea. Uh, Find a country where Albania has an embassy and go there and try to build a relationship with somebody in their embassy. So they had an embassy, which they still have in Vienna, Austria. So I went to Vienna, Austria, and I um, couldn't find their embassy. But I could call them on the phone, but when, when, when the switchboard operator would answer, she would detect that I was speaking English with an American accent, and she would immediately say, we have no relations with your country and hang up on me. I get it just like that, rude. We have no relations with your country and hang up. Uh, and uh, so I knew I had to find this embassy. And I had an address. I went there. It wasn't there. It had moved. And finally, the second day, I found myself standing in front of this, this mansion behind a big iron fence. And, and there was no guard there, but there was a, <clears throat> a sign that, that, um, that said, speak into the mic. Uh, and... There were officers. Officers were 8 to 12. I looked up my watch. It was 5 minutes to 12. I am half-heartedly, I started to push. I'm thinking like, you know, you know I'm not going to get in here. I have to leave. My flight is this afternoon. I'll never get in here, but I'll just try to push the button anyway. You know, I was just half-hearted about it. As I started to push the button to speak into the mic, I hear a voice over my shoulder. Excuse me, sir. You look like an American. May I help you? I turned around. Here's this young man. He introduces himself. I, and um, uh, he said, um, would you like to come in? He said, I'm political attaché here, and um, uh, would you like to come in? So he took me in, took me to a receiving room, gave me cookies and candy and tea, uh, gave me books by their dictator and postcards and postage stamps, things that no American had had before. I, and then he, I had given him my business card. At that time, I was still part-time um, vice president for international affairs for Master's College. And so I used that business card. I, and I told him that I, that I represented this college in America. I, and so he was fascinated. So he went through, well, what do you, what do you teach there? And I said, well, you know, it's... We, we, we teach school teachers, we prepare accountants, and we prepare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then he said, you don't, you don't um, train priests there, do you? I said, no, sir, we would never train a priest. <laughs> and then I said, Lord, that one was close. That's really close. You know? <laughs> so we talked further, and... and uh, and I said, you know, maybe it'd be possible, would it be possible for me to come as a guest of your government, as an educational consultant? And he said, well, that might be possible. Then, um, then he said, he said, you know, I'm fascinated with American politics. Have, have any of your presidents ever written a book? And, and I said, probably all of them. Uh, he said, could you send me one when nobody's being very discreet? And so when nobody's looking, he actually asked me for a scrap of paper, and he quickly writes down his apartment address there in Vienna and says, if you could send me a book to my apartment, it would be great. So I went back home and called my secretary in, and I said, Harriet, take this address, 
And I said, every month until I tell you to stop, I want you to go out once a month and buy a book by an American president and send it to this guy. Well, six or seven months passed and I didn't hear anything. And one day I got a, this was in the, remember the fax days? Didn't they seem a long time ago before email? <laughs> I get a fax from him. Uh, and it's very short. He just says, I've been transferred in the foreign ministry back to Albania, and I'm ready to serve you any way that I can. Translation, I got the books, right? <laughs> so I write back, and I say, remember we talked about me maybe coming as a consultant to the Ministry of Education. Within a week, I had another fax came from the Vice Minister of Education of Albania asking me to come I, as a consultant to the Ministry of Education. So here I go as a guest of a government that we don't have diplomatic relations with, and I'm an undercover missionary. Okay? <laughs> and it was amazing. And the Lord, I didn't have any fear about this. I didn't, there was a lot I didn't know, okay? Uh, I mean, I knew that they had killed all the believers and that they had closed all the churches. I didn't know at that point until I went there that they had changed the Constitution, so, and the only country that has ever done this, uh, requiring that citizenship requires affirmation of atheism. If you weren't an atheist, you weren't allowed to be a citizen of that country, okay? Uh, and, and the second dictator was still in power when I went. Uh, and... The other thing I didn't know was that the penalty for possession of a Bible was an automatic seven-year prison term. Uh, so they met me at the airport. Imagine, here I am, this missionary coming in. I'm met by government car and driver. I, and he takes me to my hotel, which is provided by the government. Uh, and then, then he said, they've told me to take you to visit several schools. So I'm visiting schools. And the schools were just in deployment. Well, the country was at the end of its rope. I mean, they were just, you know, I, I'm going to quickly read, read a passage. I'm not going to keep you here all night, but um, this will be quick. I'm just turning to it to, so, I, so I'm ready. But <clears throat> so the, the, the school, the country, everything about it was just horrible. You couldn't imagine. Um, they were cutting down the trees along the streets to burn. For, it was February because they had no other source of heat in their homes. Uh, I went to the, to, to the uh, marketplaces. There was one grandmother there. She had three tomatoes to sell, and another one had a couple cucumbers, and that's always for sale you know, in, the, in the main marketplace in a city of 300,000. Uh, and uh, the school windows were break, broken out of all the schools that I visited. Children were sitting there freezing. They had no paper. They had no pencils. They had no books. Uh, and uh, the blackboards were so old, even if they had chalk, you couldn't. It was just awful. Uh, and so after this horrible school experience, the next morning they came, took me to meet with the vice with the minister of education and his staff of about a dozen guys. Uh, and so um, they introduced me. I'm in the meeting. Um, they asked me to speak. Well, I'd been up much of the night praying about, you know, what am I going to say there? You know, how am I going to approach this? Well, the Lord led me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Remember, I didn't know that I could go to prison for seven years for possession of, of a Bible. I, and so I, after thanking them profusely for the privilege of being there as an American, I said, my heart is broken with you for the condition of your country and especially your schools. And I, and I said, but if you would, Mr. Minister, if you would, if you would please permit 
I said, I've brought a book with me that if you would allow me to read a few sentences from this book, it would explain to you how your country got in this terrible mess. And so he said, please. I said, by the way, I said, I said uh, this book is called the Bible, and we believe that it is the word of God. I, and so he, he motioned for me to read. So I, I'm standing, and I take my Bible, and I read from Jeremiah chapter 17. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. And when I'm reading, these, these top leaders of education, they're all affirming me. They're all saying, that's what we did. We turned from God and now we're in this mess. That's what we did. And I said, but if you'll allow me to continue, maybe you've heard of the unprecedented prosperity in America. I said, America is a nation that from its inception has been based upon the principles found in this book. Uh, And because of that, God has blessed America. And I said, allow me to continue. It goes on to say, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, but not, nor cease to yield fruit. And then I asked them if they'd ever, because we're talking about trusting the Lord, I asked them if they'd ever seen American money. <clears throat> and they said no because we'd had no contact. And so I took out a 10 or a 20, and I, and I pointed out how it says right here on this money, in God we trust, and how it says that on all American money. And I passed it around, and they were blown away. I mean, they're like, you know, boy, did they deceive us, you know? I mean, they told us there is no God, and here America is the most prosperous country, and you believe in God. And, <clears throat> and so then a discussion ensued, Uh, The minister was called out to the parliament for some emergency. The vice minister took over the meeting. We talked for probably a half an hour. And um, then he said to me, Dr. Provost, we know what happens when God is removed from the schools of a country. Will you help us put God back into the schools of Albania? I couldn't believe my ears. And then I said, well, how do you train your teachers? And they said, well, we, well, they go to the university and they learn their subject material. I said, well, do you have any, any pedagogical training? Do you teach them how to teach? And they said, no, we, we really don't do that. I said, well, if you want to improve your schools, you've got to teach them how to teach. And I said, if you like, I could bring Americans who are experts in, in pedagogy and we could hold together in-service training conferences for your public school teachers. And they said, let's do it. I go back to Master's College, which has an excellent teacher training program, and start bringing their teachers to Albania. And they became heroes. When they would come into the country, they'd be on television, you know, because they just became, and, and we got them their first computers and all of that, and it just developed incredibly. Uh, so that now, well, let me say it this way. Uh, the, uh, I couldn't get anybody to go there, and so I asked one of my sons if he would go there for two years. He was headed to the Middle East. He's been there 15 years. 
I, and uh, the church was great. But I was organizing a church with all these highly educated, all the educators who became the first church. But he, he couldn't afford a, to rent a good-sized room for them to meet. And so he said, Dad, everybody wants to learn English and computers. Why don't we start a school to teach them, how to teach them English and how to use computers? And we'll charge tuition, and from that money we can rent a building, and then the church can meet there on Sunday. That's how the church began. The Lincolns, it became the Abraham Lincoln Professional Study Centers, and now there are three of them, and they've trained 40,000 in English and computers and developed a phenomenal reputation in the country, and et cetera, et cetera. And then the church, the church got, was able to take over the dictator's house where he lived when he killed all the believers. And, and when he passed the law to, you know, you've got to be an atheist, the church has had his house for three years, right in the heart of the capital. They've reverted back to their original Muslim faith, but the mosque is a kilometer away. But the Bible-preaching church is right next to the prime minister. You know? And by the way, back in December, uh, we held a conference there uh, on the biblical basis of economic prosperity. And 300 government and business leaders came to the main hotel. And Dr. Wayne Grudem, do you know that name? He came to teach, uh, and Dr. Barry Asmus, who's a top American economist, who's a Christian, they came to teach. But the prime minister opened the meeting. Can you imagine? 18 years before, you know, the dictator is, is, is are you still going to prison, you know, for holding a Bible, for owning a Bible, and 18 years forward, the prime minister of the country is opening a Christian conference, you know? Uh, it's incredible. I mean... Why do I share it? For vision. There are other countries like this. Young people, there are countries out there waiting for you. Now, older people, there are countries out there waiting for you. Who is ready to say to the Lord, I will go anywhere, I will do anything, and I'm ready to do it right now?